Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. All right. Well, if you open up your notes page, you're going to see, you may see an unfamiliar name as the person preaching. So today I get to introduce our, our, guest, our guest preacher today. Uh, he has become a, a great friend of mine. Uh, he's, he's a mentor of mine, an actual coach in ministry. Um, Jeff Shu is, is, is a leader in San Diego County. Um, that is, he, he has a ministry he founded and is the director of a ministry called Flourish San Diego. And isn't that a great concept to, that, that we want this city to flourish? One of the phrases I hear him saying a lot is that he wants us, he wants to help us to love this city to life. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That, that's what he's all about. So, so what he does, he's actually been, over, over the years, has been coaching and mentoring, leading a, a bunch of pastors about how we can flourish the churches that we're in so that the city can flourish. And, and just recently, he's started to, to think about how we can do this with m- more people, okay, with um, not just the weird pastor types, um, but the normal people um, with, with you. In fact, um, starting up... This, we're we're, we're going to be the, the test case in this. The first time that we're going to open this class up to, uh, to, to anybody. And, uh, and you're going to see it on this page here. It's called Flourish Academy. And so starting September 16th, we're going to be doing that. And uh, you get a, a little bit of a, a sneak peek of that today. And so um, it is my pleasure to introduce to you and welcome up to the stage Dr. Jeff Shu, take it away, man. Well, it's a delight to be here with you. If there's anything I know about you, it is um, you're probably good swimmers, so that's a a good thing. When Josh had introduced me earlier uh, with my title, um, I figured that since I can't get my kids to call me doctor at home, you don't have to call me doctor either, so that's a good thing. I do charge a copay if you choose to do that. (laughs) Flourish San Diego is the name of the organization that uh, we started about 10 years ago. And um, we like to say our name is our aim. Stole that from a dry cleaner. Um, (laughs) The idea of the church, the body of Christ within a city, being living into its vocation of God to be the redemptive presence is what we, um, we think we're supposed to be about. And the picture of it then of the church being the redemptive presence uh, in our city is uh, precisely this language of flourishing. So that's uh, what we're about. My wife and I, we moved here. Uh, we, were serving as, uh, we were serving overseas for a little bit in East Asia, and we landed here in 99. And um, a lot of my training has been as a missionary. And so um, I worked with a group called uh, Campus Crusade for Christ at the time, today called Crew. Uh, so a lot of campus ministry work. And then when we were working... Um, so, oh, all right, slow down. I'm excited. Okay, so if I speak fast, you can think two things. Either I'm from New York or I'm getting paid by the word. So that's <laughs> distracted again. So um, the work of missions is largely figuring out how to communicate the never-changing gospel into a different cultural context so that it always looks like the words of Jesus, but it also looks like that new context. And the challenge with 
the work of the church today is that culture has shifted so radically and so rapidly that all you need to do is cross the street and realize you're having to communicate the gospel faithfully cross-culturally. That's the work that we do. We try to help churches figure out how to navigate the great changes in culture so that you can form the kinds of people that love our city to life. That's the day job. Okay, my task today is to continue on in the sermon series, Signs of Life. We're in the latter half of chapter 7 in John. And um, I want to ask you a question. We're going to spend a couple minutes reflecting on this. Clicker. What do you want? It seems like a simple question, right? What, what do you want? Right about this hour, it's a double cheeseburger for me. <laughs> but then once you get past that, it's like, how do I make sense of life? What am I supposed to do with my life? Where does my sense of meaning and purpose and significance come from? When I mean, you begin to realize that you want answers to these sorts of questions at a very deep level. These are the kinds of questions that you ask yourself in significant moments in life, right? If you're a high school student, you're trying to figure out what college do I go apply to because, you know, before you can even do that, you have to know what you're good at, right? And then you have to kind of figure out if what you're good at is something you're going to get paid for and maybe someday get married and have 2.5 kids and a goldfish. Yeah. What am I supposed to do with my life? What's it all about? Perhaps you find yourself in middle management or quasi-middle management. The boss above you takes credit for all of your good ideas. You find yourself making just kind of enough money, but you realize your kids need braces. Is this all there is? What do you want? Perhaps you're approaching retirement or recently retired, and you find yourself asking, where does the time go? Amen, brother. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? And you know that there's something that's significant that sits down inside this space. And if you're attentive, we recognize that there's this, there can be this unrest that sits at the base of our souls. It might be described as a longing for more. I sometimes think of it as this low, inaudible frequency that sort of calls to us. And occasionally it resonates in such a way that I recognize, oh, that I can recognize something that's good and that's right and that's beautiful and true. I want more of that. But most times we may not notice it. Busy pursuing the kinds of things that we think will truly satisfy. But... Mm. This longing, this hunger, this thirst is real. And while I may, I hope, I, I think, you may experience the same sort of thing, I actually spend most of my time trying to not want what I want. 
But in today's passage, we're to recognize that the yearning and the longing and the hunger and the thirst that we experience at times and moments of clarity is, in fact, something that is to be satisfied. And the passage today in John chapter 7 is precisely Jesus' read on what it is we're thirsty for and what will truly satisfy and quench that thirst. Latter half of John chapter 7, if you'll recall from last week's sermon, Ryan reminded us that the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And it's one of the three big religious holidays where you could or should, depending on how much people are telling you you're supposed to do this, make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. It's a festival that runs for seven or eight days, and it involves um, the dwelling in booths. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Booths, but it's called Tabernacles because Tabernacles is tents. And so um, this is what it looks like about five years ago in Jerusalem when this uh, holiday is celebrated. The holiday is intended to help the people of God reflect on his faithfulness during the wilderness wanderings, right? Where's the food going to come from? Manna. Where's the water going to come from? You know, Moses hit a rock and streams of life-giving water flowed. And so this festival, in many ways, is a harvest sort of a thing, right? Because now they recognize they come to, to Israel, the land of promise, and there's like great veggies. So this is a good thing. This is what they're trying to celebrate. Um, lots of things are happening, religious services, lots of reading of the scriptures. Of interest here is one of the things that did, they did each day was to draw water from the Pool of Siloam. You'll hear about that in a couple of chapters. But a priest would come and draw water out of the pool of Siloam in a ceremonial pitcher. It's supposed to be a certain way. And then in a great parade, accompanied by trumpets, they would head to the altar. And this is a very celebratory, it's a joyous thing. They were supposed to wave a certain type of willow branch and a couple of other branches actually involved as well and carry a very particular citrus fruit, um, this, this, I worked hard on my research. So it, it's called an etrog. It looks like a lemon with a really fat rind. Um, that one looks like a hand grenade in the middle. It's really odd. Um, but what's really interesting, um, and this is important to note, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, two different sects within Judaism at the time of Jesus, was, you know, what are you? They had a different opinion just about everything. And so when it came to the leaves that were to be carried, the Sadducees would say, no, actually, the way you're supposed to do this is you're supposed to build your huts out of these willow branches. And the Pharisees say, oh, no, no, you don't. If you want to satisfy the law, that's not, that's not what you got to do. What you actually got to do is you got to carry on your right hand the right branches and on your left hand, you carry the, the citrus fruit. And they would like have like extracurricular conversations about these sorts of things. Everything was carefully choreographed. From the swishing sounds that you're supposed to be making with the, with the branches to how the priests were supposed to so circle the altar. You know, and then when they come in, they're supposed to pour the water out on one side and they're supposed to pour the wine on the other side. Very particular. Now, this procession and these various proceedings apparently happened through the night, some 15 hours long, three hours longer than this sermon. <laughs> Don't worry. But this is supposed to happen all through the night until the temple services began in the morning, every night. Now, 
I'm tired just trying to summarize a little bit of all that was involved in this festival. And when I actually you research it, you realize there are lots of fascinating different interpretations about how to properly celebrate Sukkot. And I'm like, okay, if I were there in this very, in this very, you know, in Jesus' setting right now, celebrating Sukkot, I'd be like, I'd be the Jew. I'd be the, trying to be the good Jew, wanting to celebrate God's faithfulness to his people. But I can imagine myself trying to avoid eye contact with the Pharisees because I really didn't want to be condemned if I didn't swish my branches properly. And I wouldn't want my booth to be too close to a Sadducee because a willow hut sounds drafty. And then I'd be sad, you see. But I think, yeah, groan. I said, wait for the groan. See, I have this in parentheses. I think the thing that I'd really have a hard time is this 15-hour trek because I Googled it. It's only a 16-minute walk. <laughs> I'm like, then I'm like, yeah, come on. <laughs> but I think this is one of those times when I would find myself asking, is this what it's all about? I mean, I know it's supposed to be satisfied with the temple services and all the spiritual practices, and I'm genuinely thankful to God, but isn't there more? How does all of this answer my deepest yearnings for meaning and purpose and significance? Is this all I can expect from my relationship with God? Maybe if I were more zealous about the way in which I swish my branches, I'd be more satisfied. Uh, those Pharisees don't look very satisfied. I hunger and I thirst for more. And so then you kind of ask, ask this question in verses 37 to 38, which is where we're going to be spending our time. On the very last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up despite the fact that he was being sought after by the temple guards. And he says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Ooh, I want that. What's that mean? Mm, I want that. See, Jesus is secretly attending the Feast of Tabernacles, largely because he's in hot water with the Pharisees again. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. What's new? Nevertheless, on the last day... Of this feast, what could prompt them to stand up and cry out in a loud voice? Whoever's thirsty, come to me. What would it be? I'd like to suggest that this wouldn't be the first time that Jesus would have looked upon the multitudes and felt compassion because they looked harassed or confused and helpless, downcast. Except in this situation, it would be a little bit scandalous because he's looking upon the people of God in the temple of God, in the city of God. And I wonder if there's just a little bit too much preoccupation with questions of branch usage and citrus selection. You know, there's extracurricular arguments about what's right and good, what the scriptures teach, and how we can genuinely honor God. Good conversations that must be had, but things that tend 
to lead us toward division. There are times in which I feel like the church in North America also suffers from arguments not unlike branch waving. I'm wired as a shepherd. Our organization stewards a lovely grant to support the well-being and resilience of pastors and church planters. We've done the research. I can tell you how challenging it has been for pastors and church leaders to lead their congregations through a pandemic in today's cultural environment. Pastor, what do you, what do you think? Mask or unmask? Vaccinate? Don't vaccinate. Do black lives matter? Or do all lives matter? What's your position on critical race theory? When it comes to the outreach or the impact of the church, is it evangelism or is it social justice? What's your position on people that use plural pronouns? Do we fortify ourselves from this evil culture? Or do we dominate it and legislate a morality? These are impossible questions in a cultural environment, you know, where there's no middle ground or room for dialogue. And I'm afraid some of that leaks into our midst. And so I can imagine us trying to avoid eye contact with angry elves from the South Pole in our midst. (laughs) Because I think we know and suspect that this longing, this yearning, this hunger, and this thirst that we have is actually a desire to want more of God. We hunger and we thirst for Him, and we're longing for satisfaction with the deepest questions that we have in life, and we think it's found in the God revealed to us in the Scriptures, and we come to church... And yet, question mark. So after a week of religious services, feasts, and parades, is it possible that all the religious programming still leaves the pilgrims thirsting for God? Do you see what Jesus is saying? If you thirst, if you hunger, if you long for something that will truly satisfy you may need to realize that the question isn't what you want, but who you want. You can fill in the blanks on your sheet. It's how we were designed. It's how we were created. And yearning for more of God and to be more like him is a feature, not a bug. At creation in the garden, we were created to commune with God. We were wired to fellowship with him and to love him and to be loved by him. We were and are still given meaningful work to steward creation and co-create things. Created in the image of God, we are to resemble him as love and fleshed. And yet with the fall in Genesis 3, we decide that being godlike is not enough And we chose to be Lord and master of our own lives. And now, rather than experiencing his delight, we can experience fear. Our work is now difficult and painful, but here's the thing. God still loves us. He still pursues us. We still bear his image. And now we can understand that that deep yearning and that longing for the good and the true and the beautiful is really a desire for a return to God, more of God in our life. It is. 
And we want to return to his embrace much like the younger prodigal son. That, that story is so good because he runs. God runs. He doesn't even let the younger son get his excuse out or his proposal for fixing things. He ch- God chases after us. What we want is to understand who we are, how to live with him, and that life makes most sense when we are doing so in the way in which we're created. And so, Jesus, on the last, in the greatest day of the feast, he stood up and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Let me tell you what will quench your thirst. It isn't a something or a, it's someone. It's a someone. It's me. That's what Jesus is saying. So come to me and drink. How do you drink Jesus? All right, this is a puzzling question. I don't hear any raindrops right now. But the word drink can also be used, not just in the glug glug sense, but also like when a raindrop hits a parched ground and it gets absorbed. Is it possible, I believe, that Jesus is saying, hey, if you're thirsty, come to me, be satisfied in me, and absorb me. Become like me. This is what we call discipleship, right? The process of becoming Christ-like. And we call the process so radical that we actually call it transformation. Is it possible that Jesus is saying, come to me and become like me is actually not only what we want, but also what God wants? what Jesus wants. One of the things that we want to pay attention to when we think about the gospel is that, I said that, the good news is that our debt is paid. Of course, we know that. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for every single one of our sins. Praise the Lord. The gospel is absolutely that. And, but, also, The gospel is good news because it frees us to who we need to be for the sake of others. Hold this in your head. David Kinman of the Barna Group authored a book entitled Unchristian. Unless you're related to him, you don't need to buy the book. The premise is simple. Based on their surveys and research at the Barna, they could tell you that Jesus always polled well. We know this. Jesus always polls well. But when the general public, particularly young Americans, looked at the church, they could not see the resemblance to Jesus. This led them to conclude that they were actually unchristian. And this is more than just a PR problem for the church. This growing category of the de-churched is where, lamentably, we are finding many of our own children and our grandchildren. What's the way forward? What's the solution? Well, it's not new. It's actually, praise the Lord, very familiar, but maybe too familiar or not familiar enough. It's the gospel. And there's a difference between the gospel and its counterfeits. 
which is what we're going to spend a little time talking about here. In our classes, we offer a diagram just to be able to distinguish the gospel. The gospel, the thing that will actually transform you toward Christ-likeness, and contrasting that from, from its counterfeits, that will also transform you, but actually malform you into something you don't want to be. It's actually going to work against what you hunger and desire and thirst for, and it also is going to frustrate your, your efforts to become more like Jesus. I'm teased by my friends um, when I use two-by-twos, but this is why it's useful. Sometimes we take the question like, how do we become more Christ-like? And we put it on a continuum. What's the way to do it? Is it that I try to work really hard and to keep all the spiritual practices and I put a lot of energy and effort into keeping all the rules? Or do I say, no, I just need to recognize that I have to embrace God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and recognize that the Holy Spirit does the work in my life? Well, which one is it? Right, it's a little bit of both. So what a two-by-two does is it takes these two things and separates it from the continuum and you place it on its grid. All right? So on the x-axis, I'm sorry, on the y-axis, what I like to illustrate here is this is the law. This is like, this is recognizing the scriptures call us to greater holiness. It calls us to virtue. It calls us to resemble Jesus. Right? There is a sense in which the gospel aims to help us look more like him. The x-axis then becomes this notion of the fact that we also recognize that we are loved and forgiven. God offers so much mercy to us and it is in fact the work of the Spirit that does the work um, of transformation in our lives. And really then, in this formulation, the upper left-hand quadrant is this idea that says, you know what, I can be a good follower of Jesus look like a Christian like I'm supposed to, and I can do all these things by keeping all the rules and I don't need God's grace. So in this analysis, what happens is, it's all on me. And I'll take the credit for it. This is really where we're going to spend most of our time. The lower right-hand quadrant, though, is, um, I think, with me. Oh, I'm so loved and forgiven, right? God's mercy is so great. The Holy Spirit does the work in me. I don't have to do anything. That doesn't produce the virtue that resembles Jesus. Neither of them actually do. Call this license. Both of these options carry the language of the gospel, but they're counterfeits. Neither are going to help you become like Jesus, absorb him or drink him in in the ways in which... Christ wants you to. Neither are going to satisfy your deep thirst to be all that you can be. Or if you prefer, neither are going to help you flourish into the fullness of who you were created to be that you actually long for. The lower left corner might be, am I caught up? Might be called um, irreligion. These are the folks that perhaps have not connected this deep yearning for more with the invitation that God offers to follow him and become like him. Of course, the upper right-hand quadrant is what I would call the gospel. It takes seriously the call to holiness and the development of virtue in our life, while at the same time it recognizes that we must be desperately dependent upon the Lord's grace 
and his mercy and his forgiveness, and more importantly, the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the change in our lives that we seek. We yearn for this. So why do I bring this up here and now? Other than I think it's helpful, um, just generally in life, and there's much more we can say about this. Uh, So register for the class on September 16th. But I bring this up because it does a good job of giving us language to understand the controversy around Jesus in today's passage. Think about it. Jesus is, this crowd's still trying to figure out who this Jesus rabbi guy is, right? And um, in John 7, 33, uh, just before our do you thirst sort of thing and come to me, Jesus says, I'm with you for only a short time and then I go to the one who sent me. You're going to look for me, but you're not going to find me and where I am, you cannot come. Oh, what's that mean? And the Jews say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where will he go where our people, will he go where our people have scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And you can see, you can hear the gears turning in their head. They're like, is this guy the Messiah? Is the Christ, is he our savior? And, and then what, what are they doing? Where in the scriptures does it say, uh, he's going to go someplace where we can't follow him. And, um, you know, and it, you, if they didn't say it out loud, you know that they would have been thinking, chapter and verse, Jesus. If you want to show your, if you're the Messiah, prove it. Chapter and verse, where? Jesus doesn't, he replies, but he doesn't reply to justify himself. He doesn't give chapter and verse. He says, I'm not going to satisfy that hunger or thirst that you have. Let me speak to the real one. If any of you are thirsty, come to me and drink. He says this in verse 37 and 38, and then what's the response? Surely this man's a prophet. Yay! They got it. Others said he's the Christ. Yay! He got it. And interest, interestingly, as still others ask, how can the Christ come from Galilee? How does that work? You see, there are times in which we have our categories, our expectations that we expect our Savior to fit. He had to come in strength in the chariot with an army heading to the palace. No, he comes on the back of a donkey with a ragtag group of disciples walking on coats. He's supposed to be more regal like a king, but he's calloused like a carpenter. And please, there's no way the Christ can come from Galilee. I'm in the accent. You see, the danger of inhabiting the false religious performance quadrant is that it does not produce in you the kind of righteousness that you want. What it produces is a self-righteousness. It produces arguments about how branches and citrus should be deployed properly. It oppresses. It distracts. It doesn't free. It enslaves. So back to the question. What do you want? What do you expect of Jesus? What do you want Jesus to do for you? 
He's meeting our expectations. Or do you actually hunger and thirst for something deeper? Maybe you want Jesus to do something to you, not just for you. And maybe you also want Jesus to work through you. Might these be better ways to describe what it is we're called to as followers of his? Much more we can say, but we have to talk about how the gospel transforms us. The late Tim Keller, oh, this, is, this, changes, this changes everything. He's once, he wants to define the gospel as this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. More sinful and flawed than we even, we don't even want to think about it. Because if you're in a religious performance quadrant, you have to do all, the, all this work on your own. You're going to say, I don't want to see any more sin in my life. Because then I have to work more. But the gospel is at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. How do you hold these two ideas together at the same time is what the gospel is. Now, this is, this is how I used to repent. Um, I still do it. I, I only, sh- never mind. I hope in sharing how I repent wrongly that you might be able to hear some resonance with how you think. Maybe it's just me. It would be like there'd be this time, you know, where I would recognize that I had blown it. I had sinned. I had said something I'd never be able to take back. I'd wounded something's, someone's heart or whatever the, whatever the thing is. And then I would sort of head into this season of self-loathing and self-condemnation until I felt like I had punished myself enough to perhaps, to perhaps turn and, and say, Jesus... Will you love me? Do you accept me? Can I come back? I don't know if any of you identify with that. And it's like, I realized I was sinful. Yeah, sure. And I knew that I would eventually come to Jesus. But what I did is I separated these two truths. And I put a governor, a regulator in the middle, a valve that I controlled. When you stop and you think about it, Jesus probably would have said, wait a minute, you don't have to beat yourself up. I've paid for that sin. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To which I was essentially saying, "Uh, thanks, Jesus. No thanks. I'll feel better if I can beat myself up a little bit more. And at the end of the day, what I was doing, what we tend to do is essentially hold our own standard for self-forgiveness higher than Jesus's. And that's messed up. Can we take Jesus at his word? Is it true that our sins have been paid for? Yes. Are you telling me that when I blow it, I simply need to embrace Jesus's work on my behalf? Yes. Yes. I don't have to beat myself up, no. That's that's too easy. 
To which Jesus would say, mm-hmm. I did the heavy lifting. A huge step in my growth toward Christ-likeness was when I started repenting in a gospel repentance rather than a religious performance repentance. What does gospel repentance look like? Holding these two things at the same time. And I knew that I started doing that when I started feeling guilty for not feeling guilty. Think about that. If you're prone to beat yourself up because of your sins and you don't really believe that Jesus fully forgave you, you're going like, to want to do something. But if you start believing that Jesus says you're forgiven and in fact that your inability to embrace what Christ has done for you is actually a sin in and of itself... You have to figure out how to not beat yourself up. And so your understanding of repenting and according to the gospel begins with you feel guilty for not feeling guilty. But eventually you get to a place where you are constantly amazed that there's actually more sin and brokenness in my, in my I don't say your life, my life um, than I knew. And then Bring it together. Oh, Lord, I can't. Oh. There's more sin and flaw in my life than I ever dare believe. And yet, I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever have dared hope. And what happens is you begin to realize, oh, I'm loved. Even as soon as I come to the point of, as soon as I realize that I can repent and be loved. At the same time. And what it does is it sort of melts your heart in a way that you realize that, oh, if my sin is met with Christ's forgiveness, is it possible that it makes it a little bit easier for me to be able to recognize sin and brokenness in my life? And the next time I can come because I know that I'm going to be met with Jesus' love and forgiveness in the moment of my realization. And is it possible that this is how it's supposed to work? Constantly repenting, and not being afraid of repenting because religious performance means I just have to work harder, but repenting because I know I'm going to be able to be met with the grace and love of Jesus Christ every single time. That's what changes you. That's what transforms you to reflect the image of Jesus. With each sin that you discover, you realize, oh my goodness. The Lord died on the cross for that sin as well. I had no idea. Oh my goodness, with, with gospel repentance, I'm able to actually recognize more brokenness in my life and at the same time recognize that Jesus died on the cross and accomplished way more than I ever realized. That should let, lead you to your knees in worship. If any of you are thirsty... Jesus says, come to me, drink, become like him, embrace the gospel in ways that transforms your heart. And then here's the promise, streams of living water will flow from within you. What's that mean? 
Well, in verse 39, um, John is helpful. He says, by this he's referring to the Holy Spirit. So it's like, okay, how does that work? I like the idea of streaming living water. What does that mean? We don't produce the Holy Spirit, but we are conduits of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to see then how this works. You see, it's the Spirit that transforms us, right? Because our activities, all the spiritual practices and disciplines, attending church in the middle of a hurricane, these are good things. But if we, if, if we think that these are the things that are going to transform us by themselves, it will not. The Spirit actually takes your practices and translates them into, trans, into Christ-likeness. If the Spirit wasn't doing that, you'd think all I have to do is more quiet times. All I have to do is memorize more scripture. No, it's the Holy Spirit that does the work. And so how it's supposed to work is you're supposed to become like Jesus. The Holy Spirit's supposed to transform you. And then you know what happens is the way in which you live and love and serve your neighbors is a loving thing that looks like Jesus because you've become like Jesus inside. It's an authentic act that flows naturally because the work has transformed you. As opposed to the alternative under religious performance, I just need to do these things because it gets me brownie points with God but the heart's not changed. And it's an inauthentic thing that's difficult to do. But you see, this is also how once the Holy Spirit transforms us, as we understand the gospel in fresh ways and we find ourselves repenting and actually celebrating what Christ has done on the cross, we find ourselves wanting to care about what Jesus cares about loving and serving our neighbors in the way in which he has called us to. And that's how the world changes for the better. You see, the church, no better word for it, that's what you call the people who are following Jesus and being transformed into his likeness. We have have a calling to be a redemptive presence in this lost and dying world. And we do this in a couple ways, both passively as signs and foretastes of the kingdom. When people see virtuous, loving people that resemble Jesus, it looks right. It looks good. It looks beautiful. I want some of that thirst awakened. But then we're also active agents and instruments of the kingdom. What are we to do with our lives? What were we created for? Well, when you're transformed inwardly to resemble Jesus, you will, you know, like I said, you will find yourself loving and serving people in the way in which you're supposed to. Just like Jesus did. Jesus fed the hungry, and so do we. But I'm not talking about feeding the hungry by, by a canned food drive for the food pantry, as good as that is. Jesus fed the hungry, and so do we, especially if you're a farmer, if you're a baker, a restaurant owner. A big brother making a a box of mac and cheese for the little brother. These ordinary, everyday callings are more sacred than you can often appreciate. Jesus protected the weak, and so do we, especially if you're in law enforcement or social work. You serve in after-school programs. You're in the insurance industry, you know, probably visiting someone's flooded property right now. Elder care. Kingdom work is often everyday work done in love for Jesus' glory. 
how else could it mean when we says we're supposed to give our whole life to Jesus and yet we find ourselves only giving an hour and a half on Sunday mornings? If we mean that Jesus is the Lord of our life, doesn't it mean all of our life? And how do we inhabit that? Well, we were created to live like Jesus in all these spaces. Jesus healed and so do we, especially if you're in healthcare, you know, doctor, nurses, medical assistants. I continue to reflect on housekeepers and janitors during COVID who were conducting biological warfare for the health and benefit of all of us. Everyday work, you need all of life, can be more sacred than we know. And through it, if you're unaware of it, through our everyday life, we can experience the joy that comes from living on mission with God. You hunger and thirst for that as well. We are created to make a difference in the world in the name of Jesus. We celebrate our missionaries around the world. But Jesus wants people, and Jesus wants people that resemble him in every nook and cranny of Escondido and beyond. Oh, look, God has already placed his image bearers in every nook and cranny of Escondido and beyond. How do we live into that? You're created for meaningful work in this world. You're created to become like Jesus. You're created to long for him. Someone, not something. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at how good the good news is. And I think when we get a clear sense of it, we recognize, (laughs) we're reminded of just how amazing the gospel is, how unworthy we are, and yet, for whatever reason, Lord, you love us. And you say, you are worthy. And so, Lord, I would ask that you would help my friends here be satisfied in Jesus' invitation to come to him. Father, may you quench the thirst of my friends here who are longing to become more like him. And would you satisfy our desire to let the spirit flow through us like streams of living water to serve and to love our neighbors to life. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.